you could be completely new to the watch world. You will never, you couldn't waste your time. Come and see who we are, what's behind, because it's going to touch a part of your brain, no matter what, that will make you talk about your experience forever. I mean, I could take complete beginners of the watch world and they leave here completely blown away with just the beautiful story of how watchmaking was created. It goes beyond Audemars It's not about Audemars per se. It's the way watchmaking was created. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years, most recently as the home and design director at Departures Magazine, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. The world of luxury watchmaking is defined and led by only a few brands that celebrities, journalists, and aficionados alike can all agree on. One of the most storied and important names that any collector will know is Audemars Piguet, a house that has been around since the 19th century. The company remains in private family hands to this day, a rarity in today's world of high design. You may know them for their eternally chic royal oak, a thin watch with an octagonal case that helped propel the brand in modern times in the 1970s. After the watch industry was decimated during the quartz crisis, when mechanical watches went out of favor as an everyday item, legendary houses had to evolve to survive. For Audemars Piguet, they've done this without sacrificing quality. Today, just purchasing any watch from the company is a privilege. Only a few thousand watches are made each year, and that's just the way the company's CEO, Francois-Henri Benamias, likes it. Francois-Henri is a goldmine of amazing stories on the evolution of watchmaking in the 21st century, and any watcher of fashion and design can learn a lot from him. He's been with the company for most of his career and has seen the fortune of AP boom in the past 20-plus years. What makes him so fascinating to me is that he isn't your typical luxury CEO. He's brash, he's an entertainer, and he's just so much fun to speak with. I spoke with the Frenchman from his office at the headquarters of Audemars Piguet in Switzerland in the mountains about an hour outside of Geneva, about how he introduced the brand to the world of hip-hop, his latest unexpected collaboration with Marvel, and how mechanical watches are here to stay. And so, okay, so how did you, you've been with, how long have you been with the company now? It's now 27 years and counting. What was your role when you joined the company? Sales associate in France. And so what was the watch industry like uh, then? At that time, we were not obviously who we are now. We are selling watches by hand, which, which means I was going with a suitcase and watches. And if one retailer would accept to buy one or two to sell to his clients, that would be champagne and great dinner because it was that difficult. You have to understand those price points in the 1990s for watches were already serious. So for people in France in particular to sell watches at the equivalent of what would be today 40, 50, 60,000 dollars was completely insane. And so what year is this? 1994. So in the 90s, how were the mechanical watches perceived in the culture at that time? We didn't have those discussions at that time. It was, you had people who knew about watches and people who didn't know about watches. There was not an in-between. And watches were, there was not so much advertising, promotions. The fairs were not that big. So the reach was very, very small. And it's only in the 2005, six that you saw a rise of people talking now about watches. If in 1999, I would have asked a thousand people that would stop on Madison Avenue. What would be the price for a very expensive watch? They would have all told me 5000 
maybe 10. Ask the same question today. You're going you're gonna to break the 100,000 in two seconds. That's people being now aware of that world. And is, it more, is that more to do with the way that watches have changed or is it more to do with the way the clients have changed? The way the clients have changed. Mm. If you look at Audemars Piguet, the watches we're selling 20 years ago were already pretty expensive for anybody that lives and works on planet Earth. And you have to dedicate this cell to a very specific type of people, which is obviously what you see today, except that there is much more noise, much more promotion, much more awareness that got created through the course of the years, obviously, that brought us where we are today, which, which is what I said today. 100000 for a watch now is still a shock for a lot of people, but it's there. It's known. Mm. 20 years ago? No. So how does a young Francois Henri with a suitcase enter this industry? Were you familiar with the brand at first? So I knew a lot about one watch company at that time in 1994. I was one of the biggest collectors of Swatch watches in the world. Oh, no way. Okay. Oh, yes. And I sold my collection, 1,200 watches, to Whoa. Swatch in 1996. At that time, I was, yes, I, I even went on TV to show my collection several times. So I was known to be the Swatch guy. When I got the offer to work for the Piguet, you want to hear what was my first answer? Who? Who? <laughs> I didn't even know the brand. I didn't even know the brand. And when I got exposed to what they were doing uh, at the Basel Fair, where in, they were in Basel at that time. So I flew to Basel, met the people, look at the watch and say, love it. Let's do this. Before we return to our program, I'd like to thank our sponsor, B&B Italia, a leader in luxury designer furniture. Founded in 1966, the company stands out for its representation of contemporary culture and for its research and innovation, which has allowed the brand to create products with unique style and elegance. The brand is the fruitful partnership between the company's research and development center in northern Italy and the best international design professionals. The iconic products of B&B Italia radically mark the history of design. The brand has so many legendary pieces, and there's one to fit every personality. If I had to suggest an icon of B&B Italia to Francois Henri, I would suggest the Mart Relax Lounge Chair by Antonio Citerio. My guest would relate to its cool but classic shape and admire the leap in technology that was used to create it. The chair's thermoformed leather is just one of many advancements pioneered by B&B. Which iconic work of design is right for your personality? Visit bebitalia.com for more information. And so when, uh, what year did you wind up uh, in your current role as CEO? In 2012. And so in 2012, you, you get your big promotion and you sit down in your office. And, and I get scared. I know, I have to say, I got this feeling a little bit, say, because I wanted that job, big time, obviously. But at the same time, because I'm a very competitive person, so I say, I knew I could do better. And I, I know I could do better with that brand. But when you actually get the job and you sit at the desk, and three days later, I got my very first big uh, encounter with running the business. Mm. I got, what was that? I got offered, so two people came to my office the CFO of the company and the chief manufacturing officer. And they came to say, I had to make a decision 
to see if we, gonna, we would start to make our own dials for the watches, which we are not making then, or mm. buy a dial manufacturer. And the check on either side was a 12 million commitment. Mm. I never signed in my life a check for more than one. So three days in, on a part of the job which is not my forte, manufacturing, Francois, you have to make a decision. So we either start to make our own dials or we buy a dial manufacturer. 12 million. You have what, to decide. What did you say? I say, I listen to both. I say, tell me your story. I say, no, we got to make them ourselves. Go. And I took the decision. When they left the office, I was asked question. I say, <laughs> I said, 12 million. I made a commitment for 12 million. But I guess that's also part of uh, learning. Uh, doing it, and that eventually became the right decision. And why was it the right decision? Because you would think you would think back then the trend of outsourcing everything was huge, and so that would be to any sort of MBA person would say, "Yeah, if you can outsource it, outsource it." So why was the why was it the right decision? Which is why, first of all, I didn't graduate at anything. <laughs> I okay. don't have a single diploma. But the second thing is, my overall feeling was that you were you would always be at the mercy of someone doing their job properly or not outsourcing this. Because when you outsource, the person that does the job for you is not working for you. She work, that person works for you and other companies. And if at any point of time, a choice has to be made on who, let's say you are, you are, you are struggling in terms of quality on specific things, and you decide to put another brand before your brand, and now you cannot get your dials on time. You don't deliver watches. You are at risk and say, I'm not leaving our destiny in the hands of outsiders. Mm. This I knew. And which is why I think I took the right decision. And I think what, what people, what we were hinting on before is that from the moment you, you started working in the company in the 90s as a salesperson to today, the, the business is much larger. Uh, in terms of sales, I'm, I'm assuming a lot, a lot, larger, a lot. A okay, lot. <laughs> you don't have to whisper. We can, it all gets picked up. <laughs> uh, however, um, what I think people don't realize is this capped production, which is something that is is a common theme amongst similar brands in fashion and and luxury. And you guys have capped your watches at at forty thousand watches per year. Mm-hmm. Um, which in some ways sounds like a lot when you're talking about what you're selling, but actually is compared to some of your competitors is quite, quite small to people that don't know. Can sure. you explain to people who, who maybe uh, have a very limited understanding of, of the luxury watch world what that means? So first of all, the world luxury has been used and abused to, for too many years, and people don't really know what true luxury means. And luxury, by definition, is exclusivity. That's where you start with. And it's craftsmanship. It's also uh, the fact that you cannot see those, so everything everywhere at any single, any single time. So you have to monitor the sales very carefully. And today I would say that the, the potential for the brand is roughly above 50,000, maybe 55,000. We could sell potentially today 55,000 watches. But if tomorrow I give the order to everybody at Audemars Piguet to move to 55,000 watches, the perceived value is going to go down the drain in like month. In six months, it's not going to be the same. Could we reach at some point 55,000 watches or even 60,000 watches? Yes. 
But there is a fine line between what you could sell and what you have to deliver. And the big and the most important, important thing being independent is we don't have any quarters to report. We don't care. And when I have a board of directors that says, oh, I want to buy my 10th jet. Or I want to buy my 100th painting from Picasso. They are very simple people that really want to develop the business, but in balance to what we could do. And if you force a revenue, at some point, you're going to get hit. You're going to get hurt in the worst possible way, which is why being in not a public company helps a lot in today's world. But if you think about the true potential, I always say we are now 8 billion people on the planet. And if you, take about, if you talk about the ultra-wealthy people, you always talk about the 1%. Now, 1% of 8 billion people is 80 million people. You know what? Divide that number by four. Mm -hmm. So now it's 20 million people. You're talking about the top of the top of the top, 40,000 watches. 20 million people. Do you think I should look at the glass half full or half empty? And that's the thing. Let's plan on building the success one watch at a time and one client at a time. Because when I came on board, the brand was doing a little bit more than half a billion in sales. We did almost 1.2 billion in sales. Revenue is always the consequence of a good or bad strategy. So far, it has been paying off. So we're going to keep doing what we are doing. There is no rush to reach out 60,000. If it takes five years, three years, seven years, it, it's not going to change much. So let's do it right. That's what I would say. Before we return to Francois-Henri, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Artemist. Artemist is the world's fastest growing online retail destination for exclusive Italian luxury design, decor, lighting, and gifts. Founded in 2015, Artemis celebrates and preserves authentic Italian craftsmanship by providing a global platform for more than 1,000 independent producers, designer makers, and artisans, and features thousands of exclusive products. The unparalleled online edit you find on Artemis includes the most extraordinary Italian makers for which the country is world-renowned. Design lovers and casual shoppers alike can search through more than 50,000 items, and you can take a closer look with multimedia content, such as 360-degree views, videos, and detailed descriptions of each maker's history and specialized techniques. Listeners of The Grand Tourist can enjoy 10% off at Artemis with the code THEGRANDTOURIST, that's one word. So visit Artemis.com for more information. That's A-R-T-E-M-E-S-T dot com. Audemar Piguet is still headquartered today where it's always been, in the Valley de Joux in the mountains of Switzerland. This valley is where many similar houses originated, where farmers centuries ago first started making the mechanical elements of timepieces in the cold winter months when they were snowed in and had a lot of time in their hands. Over the ages, each company would have a single specialty. Today, much of that tradition remains. And as a private company, AP has helped to keep this specialized culture of making alive. And key to understanding the brand's success today is how Francois-Henri and the company he steers has been a pioneer not just in watchmaking, but in the art of the collaboration, especially in the world of hip-hop. No, so, the, so you have to understand, when I moved to the U.S., it's 99, May 1999, 
and my English was very, very broken. Now I think I speak okay English, but then it was a Not as good. But I was lucky enough to have already a lot of connections in the country. And I knew Arnold a year before. I met, I had met Arnold a year before. And I will always remember because he wanted to wear watches and buy watches for his movies. But nothing to do with any promotion whatsoever. And we were at Chatsi, his restaurant in uh, Santa Monica. And we're at the table. They are watching on the table, his bodyguards. And I said, come on, what are we doing here? It's... It's useless. You're shooting a movie right now, right? Yeah, I'm gonna, he said, I'm going to start to shoot end of days. Okay. Is there a chance we could put a watch on you in the movie and we make a special edition and we'll raise money for your foundation, which was about uh, after-school programs for underprivileged kids? And he said, I like it. And that's how we started it. Okay, so we made the watch. Now you have to understand. We, have, we had zero power of the way the watch could appear in the movie. And by the way, you could watch the movie a zillion times. You might even see when you go to see the watch. The watch, you see it uh, a third of a second when he's hanging from the balcony, and that's it. But the fact that he wore the watch in the movie, and we made a special edition, mm -hmm. started to create some buzz around it. Is these kind of collaborations also kind of spurring risk-taking, right? Because the one, the end of day's watch... Am I am I correct in remembering has a Velcro strap? Yes, sure, sure. And so uh, it's the the only one you've done with a Velcro strap, if I, is, or no? We made yeah. others, but that was the very first one with a Velcro. Yes, which is a cheap material when you think about Velcro. Sure. There is there is no value, but it was cool. And Arnold was always making a point say it has to look cool. Okay. And was that his idea, the Velcro? Yeah, he wanted the watch to be. I remember the conversation so perfectly. Say, I want the watch to look industrial, okay? But we mean, say, yeah, industrial, okay? So <laughs> we had to interpret what he wanted to talk, to talk about. And we raised over $3 million from the sale of the watch alone. And the very first time we auctioned off one watch, the watch won in the movie, we raised $80,000 when the watch was selling for thirteen. So I, I opened my eyes to the crowd in the room and I say, okay. That's something we could work in, with in the US. Very charity-oriented. Celebrities and charity, that works. Let's see what we could do. And that's how we started the whole thing. Now, I met Jay in 2001. At that time, he had already 12 or 13 of our watches. Okay, so he came from a friend of mine. We are blasting his music in the office. And on the very first time we met, he said, Francois, you and I, we're going to make a watch together. And in my head, I was saying, sure. In 2001, well, that's, that's going to fly. But we became friends and eventually spending time with him. At, the, at, the, at that time, he was with Damon Dash and Biggs. Also spending time in the studios. And I got to, we got to know each other better and better. And at some point, I saw hip-hop as being what was jazz in the 20s in the US. Started completely African-American and became mainstream. And I say, you know what? Now it's time. And I went to Switzerland with two pictures. A picture of Jay and <laughs> Prince Charles at the Kentucky Derby or whatever it was, a special horse race. And a picture of PDD and William Loader from Estee Loader when they launched the fragrance together. And I said, listen, this is happening. Hip-hop is going to go completely crazy. And Jay is the guy to partner with. We should make a watch with him. And I got a sort of... Um, You sure? <laughs> and I finally got the okay to make 100 watches for the US market. And that's it. 
said, okay, at least I came back with something. And we launched the watch in 2005. And the watch was not a success only commercially, but the watch opened so much more. To, and still today, we suddenly were the brand attached to the hip-hop world. And the hip-hop went crazy. And because we started with Jay, we had the stamp of approval from the whole world in that respect. So the watch sold extremely fast. And the second thing is, most of the people that were listening to hip-hop started to listen to him and many others after talking about Audemars Piguet in their songs. And 16 years later, people still talk about it. So that was a risk, yes, but that was done on an instinct that hip-hop would actually make a real statement in culture for the world, which it is today. By the way, neither Arnold or Jay would have actually allowed us to work or to launch something that they would have not put their complete approval on. Never. And so that brings us to the, the, the Black Panther watch, which, and how long were you working with that? Let's put it this way. I met the people from Marvel in 2002 or three in New York City. Okay, there was an office in wow. New York City because I wanted to work with them at that time. And the meeting went nowhere. Not because they, we didn't understand each other, but one, the brand was not what it is today, obviously. And the second thing is sure. we couldn't find a way to make it work. Because when I went to see them the first time, I wanted the superheroes to wear them in the movie. Except that if you are the Hulk, you don't wear a watch. If you are Thor, you don't wear a watch. If you are Black Panther, you don't wear a watch. So it didn't make any, any sense. So the meeting went nowhere. And just because I mentioned that story to Don Cheadle in 2017, and he called in front of me, Kevin Feige, the CEO of Marvel, said, by the way, my friend Francois, well, we'd have to do something with Marvel. But at that time, it was not about having the watch in the movie anymore. It was much more to go back in history of watchmaking when in the 1930s, you, you could see the design of Mickey Mouse or Minnie or Pluto on watch dials as old as 1930. And in 1990, Gerald Genta, the designer of the Rylog, the Nautilus, the, and many other watches, started to also have dials on his dials, Minnie or Mickey or Pluto. So I said, I want to give an homage to that. I want to be a part of this. Who are the superheroes of the 21st century? Marvel. But we're not going to print a character on the dial and make it cute. It has to be Audemars Piguet. It has to be serious about the finishes, the craftsmanship. So we're going to push this as far as we can. And I think we did. <laughs> and so, and so why, why, why Black Panther? Because at the end, it was perfectly in coordination with the first movie would have been released. Okay, we knew that a long time before. So it was positioning the, the new franchise as the new character. And it was about family, technology, materials, forward thinking, which are values that we have also at AP. So we say, boom, let's go. We go with that one. Before we return to Francois-Henri, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Frete. For more than 160 years, Frete has brought comfort to the homes of the world with masterfully crafted linens of unparalleled quality. More than 500 European royal families have slept beneath the sheets of Frete, not to mention more than 1,500 luxury hotels around the world. The new spring-summer collection is inspired by the iconic scenes of the Italian summer. Bright saffron, radiant peach rose, as well as a classic navy blue, Call to mind the lemons of the Amalfi Coast, the coastlines of Portofino, and the deep blue seas of Sardinia. This summer, I'm sure you're venturing outdoors for your very own grand tour of rejuvenation, and maybe even enjoying a podcast or two. 
aside from yours truly, I might suggest another companion for your time under the sun. The new Lido Beach Capsule Collection from Frete. This stylish trio of must-haves contains a beach bag, towel, and cushion, and is made from a super soft terry cloth that comes in three colors, saffron, navy, my personal favorite, and slate gray. All three coordinate perfectly together for any grand location. The French Riviera, Miami Beach, or just poolside. Visit frete.com for more information. That's F-R-E-T-T-E dot com. Sure, because originally no one was making a watch entirely. You had people specialized in cases, others specialized in certain wheels, on hands, on parts of the mechanisms. And you would go to from farm to farm. They were farms. They were not factories. From farm to farm, actually to get the different parts to be finally assembled, and that would become a watch. Because don't forget, the Valley de Joux in the 19th century, it was almost empty. There was nothing. It was one of the coldest places in Europe. You had a winter that would go from the 24th of July to the 25th of July the following year, basically, the 23rd wow. of July. You had snow like Buffalo, like... New York. <laughs> no. <laughs> Buffalo, New York would be St. Bart's. Uh, okay. 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 No, 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 no. Not like Buffalo, New York. Like <laughs> crazy insane. And these farmers um, would decide to go there because they wouldn't be bothered by anyone because they would be left alone. In the, in the winters, they were supposed to make small objects actually to trade with food with Geneva and Lausanne, which was pretty much, it's 45 kilometers away, like 30 miles, 30 miles. But 30 miles at that time was very, very difficult. And so through they, the mountains as yes, well. Yes, so they started to make small objects to trade for food with Geneva and Lausanne. And eventually this object became onions, which were the ancestors of pocket watches, then mm. pocket watches, then wristwatches. And mm. you still have farms today in the Valais de Joux, outside here, where you've got the windows of the watchmakers on the, on the second floor facing north, because this is the most stable light that you get during your day to make sure that you can work the, with the perfect lighting on your watches through the course of the year. I, I, this is a question I would love to, to hear your specific answer, specifically you, as someone who has written or edited stories about watches, but is not a sort of watch uh, expert by any means, uh, I always have to, the, the, the phrase that I usually have the most difficult, most difficulty explaining to someone, and I could not do it if you put a gun to my head, is what an actual flying tourbillon is and does. And which is part of this name of the Black Panther watch, which is why I'm bringing it up now. So how do you explain to a know-nothing such as myself what on earth is a flying tourbillon? <laughs> so first of all, a flying tourbillon, it doesn't mean that something's going to fly out of the watch and going somewhere. Everything Unfortunately. Stays, everything stays in. Okay. Okay. It does but, not give you any ability to fly. <laughs> not at all. No. Don't, even, okay. don't, don't try these at home. You know, these special okay. advertising... Do not try this at home. Okay, simple. A tourbillon normally is attached to its, to its cage with bridges. A flying tourbillon is just floating in the cage. That's a difference. It doesn't, okay, give, it, it doesn't give better accuracy, by the way. It's just an aesthetic thing that gives you the, the feeling that the, the, 
the, the tourbillon itself flies, it's, it's floating in the cage when a normal tourbillon is actually attached with bridges in the cage. Of, in the cage. Okay, so that's, that's what makes it a flying tourbillon. Yes. So what is a tourbillon? How do you explain that to somebody? A tourbillon is a mechanism within the mechanism. It was created by Louis Abraham Breguet in the 18th century, no, 19th century, sorry. And it's a mechanism that was supposed at that time to compensate all these issues related with gravity. Because when you wear a watch, you don't always wear your watch like this. You don't wear it like this in the uh, street. Horizontally, right. Because this, this, you move. Right. And, and it creates discrepancies on the mechanism, potential discrepancies. So tourbillon, it's a sort of safety mechanism within the mechanism that was supposed to avoid all these issues related to gravity. Making the watch more accurate. Yes. Is that simple enough? That's simple enough. Yes. Yes. You would be surprised how, how hard it is sometimes to learn these things. I know, but let's put it this way. When I took over the CEO position, you should have seen me in the first meetings where they were only talking about with technical terms. And I was like, I say, guys, do me a favor. Don't, don't be offended if I say that, but you're going to talk to me like I'm, I'm now I'm five years old. If I don't understand what you're saying, I won't be able to repeat it to somebody else. I'm going to look stupid. And then it's not going to make any sense. Talk to me like I'm five years old. And if I understand and I can then explain to other people, I will romance it the right way, but people will mm. remember. I'm going to give you one, one, one story which I found very beautiful. You know, we make watches called the perpetual calendars. So when you have a perpetual calendar, it's a little bit complicated. What does the watch give? Day, date, month, moon phases. Now to make it simple, we live under the Gregorian calendar. So we have the leap year. Every four years, there is a leap year. So I, I asked the guys, how does it work? They started to give me things about the wheels and the number of teeth. And they said, no, 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 no. How many parts make that, that thing happen? They say, five. Okay. We're going to call these parts the family bear. It's a family of bears. <laughs> okay. That's me now talking. So they look at me and say, what? Okay, so see what you do. You've got the whole movement is a family of bears. And every bear moves every single day to make the parts. <laughs> Except five were asleep. They are asleep most of the time. But every leap year on the 28th of February, they wake up. <sighs> it's going to be our turn. They stretch a little bit. They make the date jump from the 28th to March 1st. When that's done, they go back to sleep for four more years. I told that story so many times, but then people understand and say, now that's cool. I will remember the family of bears that move the parts in the watch. Since you have such a front seat to the world of design and uh, timepieces, how do you think the pandemic will affect the world of watches with the future of the office in question and the way people dress? Uh, will people still need as many high-end luxury timepieces in their lives? Okay, so I'm going to answer it two ways. The first thing I'm going to say is, during the pandemic, many places were closed. Many stores were closed. Look at the sale of art, art, watches, alcohol and during the pandemic. When people were stuck in their homes, they wanted to enjoy their passions, no matter mm. what they were. People bought cars. They bought motorcycles. They bought, they bought boats. I mean, people don't stop buying. When you have the means, 
to afford pretty much what you what what you want, and your passion is either wine or contemporary art or watches, you got to keep buying no matter what. That doesn't go anywhere. Hmm. But the big change is this. On the third week, when the whole thing started, I was shooting a video every weekend for all our employees because they, everybody was stuck in their homes, not only in Switzerland, but worldwide. And I wanted to make sure that we, they would stay informed about what was going on, not only through their own news in their own countries, but with what's, what was going on with Audemars Piguet. And on the third weekend, I asked every single employee to, sh to ask their kids, whether the kids would be three years old or 20 years old, how they would see the after COVID. And after three weeks, we got the results. And I got videos, poems, emails, pictures, drawings. Every we kept everything because X number of years from now, we will write the story in a different we'll, we'll show what happened. And two things came from these kids. Two things. One, every single one of them spoke about love. But not the love that I've got two million friends on Facebook. No, true love. I want to be able to hug my grandfather or my grandmother. I want to be able to kiss my girlfriend, my boyfriend. Name it. They spoke about absolute love. And the second thing they spoke about, they were looking at us, the adults, the older ones, the 45 plus. They say, you should be ashamed because what you, are, what you are doing right now with our planet is not acceptable anymore. Because mm. you're going to eventually die. We're staying. We're going to have kids. And you'd better give us a planet which is in better shape compared to what it is now. Because right now, it's bad. And you are responsible for it. We can do anything as kids. You should do it. And it was the most really pointing fingers. Mm. Do something. And I digested the whole thing. And three days later, I got a sort of uh, illumination of the way we should rethink our business model. And I said, look at the world of luxury for the last 20 years. Look at the evolution. You take the best avenues on the planet. We, when I say we, the brands, the luxury mm -hmm. brands, not only watches, huh? the luxury brand. We spend fortunes on build-outs of stores. We spend fortunes on rents, yearly rents for these locations. We spend fortunes on showing off what the brands were all about. We spent very little on clients. And this is when I said, this is where we have to change the business model completely because you could spend a ton in build out, hire the most famous architects to build and to design your stores and pay crazy rentals and have the store which is four times the size of your competitor. But you haven't said hello to a client yet at that stage. And we wanted to change that thing completely and refocus the investment. And the investment is not always money. The investment, but on people, on people that would actually be able to afford our watches. And that's what we changed a lot because of COVID. Without the COVID, maybe that would have come two or three years later. So it COVID, sort of accelerated history. Big, in a big way. I say, these kids are right. These kids are right. People, they want love and they want to feel loved, respected, honored for who they are and what they stand for. And we need to invest on them, not on the decor around them, on them. And that's going to take time. It takes time. It's, it's to build. But for example, 
we hire less and less people coming from the luxury world and we hire more and more people coming from the hospitality world. Why? Because we want people who care. We want people who can show love. And that's a huge change of 2020, obviously, that started. And that's the fastest one that every single employee of Audemars Piguet took upon himself or herself to change almost overnight. We call these people to people, okay? That notion of people to people changed almost overnight in everyone, everyone's mentality at Audemars Piguet. And beyond, uh, you know, pulling in new people from other, from maybe hospitality, what other kinds of ways are you sort of creating this love atmosphere? Where, like, where, how is... By teaching everyone that you cannot standardize love or luxury. And if I have to talk to you as a client to the store, the same you could have two different moods depending on his day, the way his day goes by. On a Tuesday morning, you could be angry, got upset, something, couldn't drop the kids at school, you're late in meetings, you got bad news, whatever it is. When the same you, the same day at seven in the evening could be completely different because suddenly your day got better and now you're happy and your mood B. And if I cannot understand that as a, cl- as a salesperson, someone that will take care of you, and I want just to replicate exactly what I'm t- being taught every day, offer a glass of water or a cup of coffee or a glass of champagne, except that if I don't listen to the fact that you were on Rue du Faubourg Saint-Honoré in Paris, and you've been already to six locations where you got offered water or coffee or champagne, if I'm the seventh one to offer this, you got to kill me. So rule number one, reverse the process. Listen to people. Start to listen. People will be willing to talk to you. You know who are the, the biggest listeners on the planet and who people can talk a lot even when they don't know them that well? Doctors, osteopaths, mm. chiropractors, masseuses, hairdressers, people who take care of you. People will just let them, they will open themselves because people need to talk. And too many times in the selling world, we are taught to talk to people because we have to give them our our pitch. We have to tell them X, Y, Z. We have to check every boxes. It doesn't work this way anymore. Thank you to Francois-Henri and the entire team at Audemars Piguet for making this happen. The editor of this episode is Stan Hall. Transcriptions are by Kara Johnson. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Grand Tourist. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.